Welcome to Disability and the Canadian Church, a podcast where we talk about the intersections of disability and the Christian faith in Canada and beyond. I'm Keith Dow. And I'm Jasmine Duckworth. We'll be your hosts, and we're so glad you're joining us today. We're excited to learn from diverse voices as we welcome a couple of guests each week to share their insights and expertise on aspects of disability and faith. Cynthia Tam is an ordained minister and the National Coordinator for Disability Ministries with the Alliance Canada. Having completed her PhD in theology, she's involved in teaching in the Alliance stream at Tyndale University. With a professional background in occupational therapy, Cynthia co-founded Village Eulogia for Families with Special Needs and continues to serve families with children with disabilities throughout this organization. She is the author of Kinship in the Household of God Towards a Practical Theology of Belonging and Spiritual Care of People with Profound Autism. Stephen Bedard is an author, pastor, autistic advocate, and parent. He has his doctorate of ministry in the area of disability ministry from Acadia Divinity College. He lives with his wife, Amanda, in Brookfield, Nova Scotia, and is co-pastor at Brookfield Baptist Church. Stephen's oldest two children have autism and live in a group home setting. Stephen's the author of How to Make Your Church Autism-Friendly. What did you find interesting in the conversation today, Keith? I found it really helpful as we were talking about being a family, the family of God, the household of God, uh, kinship, friendship, uh, some of those different ideas and how they intersect. And hearing from from Stephen's perspective as a, a family member, a, a dad, a pastor, uh, how that's looked for him. And then for Cynthia as well, coming from different perspectives and how they relate to those concepts. Uh, it just made me think about my own relationship with the church as well. And how do I experience belonging? How do I express that and receive that in different contexts? I liked how transparent they were about how their language and their thinking has changed over time, because I think this is something that everybody notices um, when we're learning and reading and uh, talking about disability and autism, is that the language keeps evolving, and uh, they both addressed that in their talk today. And it was just great to see a real-life example of people who work in the field and have personal experience in the field and are continuing to learn and evolve and are open about that process. And now, here's the interview. All right, well, let's uh, dive into our conversation today. And I know our uh, podcast here is called Disability and the Canadian Church. Today we're talking really primarily about autism. And uh, so I just want to be aware and conscious off the start as well that there are some distinctions between autism and how people tend to think of disability, um, especially in people how people self-identify uh, with autism as well uh, in terms of neurodiversity uh, as opposed to potentially disability for some folks. So let's, uh, let's dive right into that. And um, I'd love to hear from each of you. What is your connection to autism? Why is this topic uh, important to you? Um, Stephen, why don't you start us off? Sure. And my connection to autism in some ways dovetails very nicely with that. Uh, the question of the connection of autism to disability and whether or not it is a uh, disability. So uh, 
my introduction to it really was when uh, my wife Amanda and I started having children. And we had uh, a son at first, and um, everything looked to be what we would uh, consider normal. I realize that normal is a very uh, uh, moving target word, but what we uh, expected anyways in terms of his development, uh, everything was going the way we expected. In fact, I remember uh, being in a doctor's office and seeing a poster that said, uh, by this age, you should have this many words. And I counted out his words and it was almost exactly where he was supposed to be. And I kind of breathed uh, a a sigh of relief that uh, he was developing well. Uh, However, uh, things began to change and uh, he began to to lose his words and to um, exhibit some behaviors that just kind of confused us. And we ended up seeing a, a developmental pediatrician and uh, we uh, spent a day talking to this doctor and uh, he went away to consult with his colleagues and he came back out with uh, a box of Kleenex. And we knew that at that moment that uh, we were going to get some uh, emotional news and we were given the, the diagnosis of autism. It was actually called something else uh, back then. It was uh, uh, PDD-NOS. Uh, pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise uh, specified uh, because they still wanted to to watch where his development was going. And at that time, uh, we had a a younger daughter who had been born and they asked if she could go into a a research study because they were trying to diagnose autism earlier. Uh, At that time, it was very common for children to be diagnosed at uh, five, six, seven years uh, and they wanted to uh, get a diagnosis uh, much earlier. And so uh, we did indeed uh, include her in that study, and uh, she ended up having a diagnosis as well. And uh, they are uh, greatly affected by their autism, um, and uh, to the point where our daughter. Uh, ended up going to live in a group home at uh, the age of seven. Uh, She is now uh, 20 years old. So uh, basically uh, two thirds of her of her life um, has been living in a group home. And our uh, our son, he ended up going into a group home at the age of 13. And he is now uh, uh, just turning 22. Uh, so he's been in that for, for quite a while. So I would say for them, uh, their experience of autism would be uh, disabling. Uh, they are uh, minimally verbal. Um, our son actually can talk, but chooses not to. And I, I say that because I've heard him uh, every once in a while will just uh, speak in perfect sentences. Uh, I can only... Uh, Think of a handful of times that that's happened, but it has happened. So we know he has uh, the ability, but for some reason uh, it doesn't come out uh, unless he's uh, he's quite uh, angry at the time, and then he can he can speak pretty good. But uh, there's a, a lot that they're not able to do. They uh, will never live independently. Um, uh, it's unlikely that they will ever have a job or uh, get a driver's license or anything like that. Um, 
So their experience of autism is disabling. But then there was a, a, a third example of autism, and that was about eight years ago after some suspicions uh, uh, from myself and even more so from my wife that maybe I might be on the spectrum as well. And so I went and uh, went to my family doctor and he uh, referred me uh, to a specialist to, um, to evaluate where I was at. And it ended up that I received a, an autism diagnosis as well. It's what would have been called Asperger's syndrome, but uh, that uh, diagnosis is gone now and is just uh, uh, put into the, the general umbrella term of autism spectrum disorder. But uh, so that is our, our experience. So I wouldn't identify as disabled myself, but I would think that my, my children do indeed have uh, a disability. Yeah, thank you. I think that really helps to set the stage and um, it, it comes by naturally, right, for you, the, the topic being kind of thrown into this world and, and faced to ask those questions uh, really early and to wrestle through some of those things. So thank you for sharing that. Um, what about for yourself, Cynthia? What's the connection there or interest? I come from a, a, probably the other end of the spectrum, perhaps. I was an occupational therapist before coming into uh, ministry. So uh, I worked with what is now known as the Holland Broville. Did they have the children's center? I don't know. Holland Broville Children's Hospital, something like that. Um, so I started working with people who have trouble with speaking. So I worked in a technology clinic supporting people uh, in producing writing and speaking with technology. And it was at the time, now we're talking maybe oh, about 30 years ago, dating myself, um, that when the Ontario government does not recognize autism as a disability. So they did not receive funding from the government to have a speech generating device. And but with, with us working with a range of different clients, we see them. And I particularly was touched with that uh, inequality. As um, Stephen said, there's there are disabling factors with autism, and in this particular case, speech generation. And um, so we came from that kind of range in the hospital until Ontario government changed everything and when autism was catching a lot of attention. So a lot of research money started pouring into it. And I was actually uh, very well aware of the research that you talk about, Stephen, in testing babies and trying to recognize autism early. I was still in the hospital system then. And... Um, and then the switch is really dramatic. Then the government started to fund everything device-wise for autism and a lot of more research pouring into it. So um, that was my, my exposure clinically. And then the other part is my involvement with an organization called Villagiologia. And it is an organization that supports families with children with disabilities. Um, there I started to real, realize 
and from that experience, and also from my myself being a lay leader at church, I guess, and starting a support group within the church, I started to see most people, most families coming into the support environment, uh, were and are people with autism. There's a lot more support going on with a, a numbers of um, disabilities groups. Um, but autism for a long time has been a group that, um, well, the church is still rejecting, I would say, in most cases. And uh, the society still do not recognize and accept and, and um, support them. So that's why the support system is much more needed in the autistic community, in my contact at least. And that's really um, raised my, my interest and concern for the population and where that took me into my research. Thanks. Really interesting to hear how both of you have had such different um, paths that brought you to this topic. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the language around autism. So, Stephen, you talked about being on the spectrum, and that's a term that I think most people will have heard, the autism spectrum. Traditionally, I've thought of it as kind of like a linear thing where there's, um, you know, a progression of symptoms uh, in terms of how much you're affected by it, or we've seen language like profound or severe or mild or, you know, all sorts of terms that people put onto um, people with autism. And I've thought of it as a linear spectrum, but I've started seeing more of a conversation about it being more like the full color spectrum, like the color wheel, and um, that every case is different, every person is different and unique. So I would like to hear both of you what do you think of it? How um, how have you seen autism play out in yourselves and the people you know? And, and what have, what's your experience been with understanding it on that spectrum? That's a that's such a, a an interesting and difficult question. Uh, I, I've struggled with this a lot, and if you look at my uh, writings, if you go back uh, a number of years, the blog posts or other things that I have written. I will refer to mild or severe. I will refer um, to um, other ways of, of, of looking at it, in, usually in that linear uh, manner. And there's a, a lot of pushback, definitely, from the autism community um, to get away from that and to, uh, to not necessarily differentiate based on needs, because that's really um, what that kind of language is is speaking about. So um, if you say a, a mild, someone with mild autism, uh, they're able to get through life with uh, uh, minimal supports, and someone with severe autism uh, they are going to need more extensive supports. And, and that has been changed even within the diagnosis um, context. Uh, it's now level one, level two, level three. And that uh, also people have a problem with because it's focusing on, on the needs. And when I get pushback uh, from that, I, I understand that and, and I appreciate the, the pushback. But I will then um, say that my experience of autism 
is completely different than my daughter's experience of autism. What our life looks like uh, is completely different. Even the areas in which uh, it's the autism that is forming us, uh, that experience is, is very different. And so while for some people it is uh, offensive to talk like this, uh, I've struggled to find um, the, the right image. In terms of the, the color spectrum, uh, I think that there's some potential there. But the, the truth is uh, someone is going to find a problem with that one as well. There is absolutely uh, no, uh, no image that is going to be without uh, some kind of, uh, of difficulty. And, and, and one of the, the challenges with autism is uh, very many people with autism are uh, extremely analytical. And if someone is going to be able to find a problem, it's going to be someone with autism. And I, I don't say that to be offensive. I say that as, uh, as a self-confessing uh, critic uh, who, sees, uh, who sees little details that, uh, that can bother me. So um, I think that there is some potential there. I don't get too worked up, though, about the linear idea, uh, because uh, sometimes uh, what we need to do uh, is work on those, uh, those needs that are there. And uh, if the spectrum um, concept helps us to, to meet the needs of people with autism, whether in the church or in schools or some other context, then I'm kind of pragmatic when it when it comes to that. I am I'm very much in agreement with Stephen. Uh, in the DSM-5, as Stephen has alluded to, we, we need, uh, is using the personal support as a way to define the levels of severity. So, behind, so there is, in that way, linear. But then when it's more like a spectrum, is it, that, let me flip back to a clinician's kind of mindset. In, in our brain, there's different areas that control uh, different functions. And in autism, the involvement in the brain could be very scattered. So in that sense, even in my study, when I focus on so-called profound range of autism, I see very different functioning level. Uh, in terms of language and, and speech, let's say, so although people who are not able to speak, some actually also have language difficulties. I, I have had people who are really only able to say or type um, or understand like in one or two or three words kind of language level. To some people that we know uh, will have published books after books who have significant uh, autism. So that in, in that sense, it's, it's a whole spectrum of very wide varieties there. But in terms of how to communicate the kind of support a person needs, there is that linear ideas there that would be helpful. Thank you both for um, reflecting on that. I think that's really helpful to get a sense of, you know, the range, the spectrum of autism and, and how it uh, impacts people in different ways. 
um, as you were saying, sometimes uh, very positively um, and, and and sometimes in difficult ways too. Uh, Cynthia, in, in your work, you ref, you've referred to your research a couple of times, and I know, um, as you've said, that that's come out of a, a history of working in hospital um, clinical settings and then in a church and lay settings. Um, but for your your book, which uh, is is very exciting to have Canadian scholarship at this intersection as well, you really um, managed to connect the dots between uh, theology and the lived practical experience of Canadian families, Canadian communities. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your research. And um, in particular, uh, you you speak to the lives of Dylan and Ellen and uh, Red Hill and the Cross as the, the congregations there. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that came to be and why was it important for you to, to work with churches and families in this way? So it is within with working the ch- with the churches that bring the awareness uh, of what is required for us to really truly um, welcome people with disability in general. But as you well know, in a PhD study, we need to focus on an area. And as I explained, because a lot of the support work that I've been doing is with autistic uh, people and their family. So that brought the focus into the areas of research. And so what I wanted to do is to see how the church can be that community of belonging for people with autism. And again, we alluded to the support need and being aware of the the most need lie with the people with more significant autism. And that, that shifts my focus into profound disability. So I worked with uh, churches directly. Um, the, the, the two churches that you mentioned, obviously not their real name, uh, to, to find a way to really explore what it means to belong. And so uh, I, I want the church to actually welcome them into the fabric of their community. And I realized that until the people can really see the, the individual with autism as a person, not different to any other person walking into the church, and being able to invite them into the church in all different ways, like in Sunday service, in discipleship, and in, in talking about introducing them to Christ, all those areas of what the church would do uh, with anybody coming to the church. So that's really what I wanted to do uh, to, to, to explore. And so I introduced the circle of friends, which is not a new idea, really. It's been around. Um, but I have found it uh, in the educational world that's after the disinstitutionalization that they have actually been using it to help autistic children to be integrated into the classroom. So I bought, that's why I borrowed the ideas and used it in a church to form a small circle uh, around the person with autism and then use the, the circle also as bridges so that the, the person in the circle would use their connection to then expand the circle, right? I started with three in both churches. And then it is what in one church it grows quicker and the other church it really grows very slowly. 
Um, but that's the idea. And then when uh, the church community begin to see how the person with autism actually function, provided with some support, then other people are more willing to come to be a friend with them. So with Ellen, as you mentioned, they, their church, um, many other people started to automatically invite her to sit with them instead of walking away from her. And uh, they invited her to join their outing to an indigenous community to the powwow and things like that. It all comes with uh, when they get to know Ellen as a person who is outgoing, who likes to make friends, who's uh, fun. And then, um, you know, the friendship goes and, and, and things started to, uh, to evolve. Yeah, I love that uh, example of a circle of friends. And I think it's something that we can all relate to as well, right? When you when you show up at a community, at a church setting, wherever it is, it's on a Sunday morning or another day through the week, and you're you're part of a little group, you look for that circle of friends to uh, to say, oh, there there are my people, right? And so um, I think it's helpful how um, how you use that concept uh, in the book and in life to really relate to churches because you don't want to just uh, bring in kind of these more institutional models that have been worked with in the past. You want to find something that really um, resonates kind of in that community setting. Um, Stephen, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that and uh, speak to how you've seen, whether it's those circles or uh, community connections, church connections, how have you seen that work in terms of wrapping around uh, people in your congregation um, who experience disabilities? The community idea and the, the circle of friends, that is such uh, an important part. Uh, oftentimes what uh, churches are looking at, uh, they're looking at programming. You know, how do we, uh, what is it that we can put in that's, formal in nature. And I, as a pastor, I understand that, you know, I like this, uh, this three step approach to getting results. Uh, but uh, nobody really uh, has that as their their greatest need. And I'm not just talking about people with autism, but uh, uh, people in general, uh, most often are, are looking for a sense of connection. And, um, and that happens in a really organic way. And it's, uh, it, it's kind of hard to, uh, to, to make it happen. Uh, but there are things that we can do. So I think about a, um, there was a, a young man at, um, my previous church, uh, who had autism and, um, and he seemed fairly aloof. Uh, but I was determined that I was going to connect with them, but I wasn't going to be pushy in, in the way I did it. And so what I did is after our service, we would have a, a coffee time and he'd be kind of circling the table there and I would make an effort to say hi. And, uh, and at first he would just completely ignore me and, and that would happen for a couple of weeks. And then, but I would keep saying hi to him and, and with his name. And then he gave me a side glance and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm making some progress here. And then after a few more weeks, he actually looked at me. And then uh, after a few more weeks, he, uh, he grunted when I, when I said that. And then eventually uh, after a, a few months of uh, being determined to do that, he actually approached me and asked me for help to, uh, 
to dress his coffee to get his uh, milk and sugar in there. And I thought this is this is great. Like I've I've taken uh, I, I've been trying to enter into a relationship with him uh, on his his terms, um, not trying to force it in in how I want it to happen. And uh, and that worked. And he had numerous uh, relationships with people in that in that congregation because of that. So uh, it's that really is is the key. If you can get that to happen, uh, really all the other stuff is uh, is secondary. Thanks. I was reading some of the posts that you've written, Stephen, for the Disability and Faith Forum. You wrote a number of blog posts over the years about your children in and, and their involvement in church and their faith and how you see that developing in them. Um, and you said a couple things that I, I loved. You were talking about your son and how he, in his teen years, he started to show an interest in coming to church and in taking communion and possibly baptism. And then you were saying you're contrasting that with your daughter and that she is not interested in participating in church the same way. But you said, I still see God at work in her. Sometimes it's just her repeating um, her repetition of the line from Veggie Tales: God made you special and he loves you very much. That's good theology. Um, you also, in another post, were talking about um, your children don't use words to communicate. And so much of the way we engage at church and the way we've been taught to engage with God has been verbal. And we build relationships through talking to each other and how you've seen them build relationships with people and with God without using words. And you talked about the incarnation and the, the word made flesh is God giving us an opportunity to connect with him beyond words. I wondered if you would um, talk about that a bit and how how churches can think kind of bigger picture outside the box to be able to connect with people in multiple different ways rather than always being so um, verbally based or um, always doing the things that we've, we've done in time in terms of the type of worship and the type of engagement, um, what other ways can churches uh, connect with uh, people with autism or people that don't use words? Yeah. And I, and I got to say that w- when I talk about this, I, I don't talk about it as someone who's got it all figured out. Um, we've moved to Nova Scotia and our uh, children with autism still live in Ontario. So we don't see them face to face. So some of the, the ways that we used to communicate are, are not uh, available to us. And so we would we'll, we do Zoom calls or FaceTime or, or something like that. And uh, our, our visits are a little bit challenging, even as uh, parent children uh, visits, um, because it's, it's difficult to have a, uh, an extensive uh, conversation with someone who is, is minimally verbal. Um, but we do find, we do find ways and, and, uh, but how we, how we communicate with our daughter is different than how we communicate with our son. Uh, even though one of them, uh, or both of them are, are minimally verbal, um, where they are and, and, uh, what, how they respond, what they're interested in, that type of thing are, are different. And so that's the, the biggest key is to find out. Um, how do you respond or how does this person respond to you or how does this person respond to other people? What is it that they're interested in and, and work with that? Um, 
again, as a pastor, I would love to have the the one way in which you can interact with minimally verbal autistic people. Um, but it it doesn't it doesn't work that way. But the great thing is, if we are open to it, they will teach us. They will help us to to figure that out. And we just have to observe and be patient and to be teachable. So I'll get, give you one example again uh, at a um, one church that I was at. Uh, we had uh, uh, what we called the, the candy man. He was a guy who always had uh, pockets full of candy that he would give to any children uh, who, who were there. And, uh, and our son liked candy. And so he was, he would always seek out this guy. And uh, one, uh, one Sunday, the, the guy forgot to bring candy. And uh, my son had his hands in the pocket there trying to see if there's any, there's got to be some candy around somewhere. And, uh, and he felt really bad that he didn't have any candy. Uh, interestingly, uh, there, the next Sunday, there was about four or five of the, the guys at church who all brought candy uh, because they wanted to make sure that our son uh, had candy. And he liked it. So, um, uh, you know, one of the, uh, um, the ways that we often talk about marriage relationships is the, the five love languages, right? Um, and uh, that's helpful in, in marriage relationships, but it's helpful in other relationships as well. And I think that there's some potential there. Uh, I'm not going to try to name them all because I usually get four out of the five and, and we'll forget one of them. But uh, the fact is that there are, are different ways that you can uh, communicate with people. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, I, a pat on the back is, is all the person needs or, uh, you know, a gift of some candy or something like that. So it might be uh, verbal and it might not. And uh, in terms of in churches, um, you know, Yes, we often, uh, at least in the, the tradition I'm in, uh, we focus a lot on uh, on the sermon as being a, uh, a central part of, of the worship service. Uh, I don't know what my son feels about my preaching, uh, but uh, you alluded to the time uh, that there was communion, and we hadn't talked about what we were going to do. He had never received communion before, uh, and... Um, so we, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I realized this as I was leading the communion service and I was wondering what my wife was thinking and what she was planning. And he responded in a very positive way. Uh, he seemed totally engaged. Oftentimes he would seem aloof, uh, but he was completely engaged there and uh, received communion and seemed emotional uh, in a um, kind of reverent way is how I would describe it. And somehow that really connected well with him, uh, more so than perhaps some, some other things there might be. So uh, we just have to be uh, aware that uh, different people are going to respond uh, in different ways. Uh, you know, even thinking about my, my own experience in church, I remember during my time in the uh, in my 20s, when I started uh, attending church again after a time away, a lot of my friends basically loved the music and endured the sermon. And uh, I endured the music and loved the sermon because that's the way my mind was. I didn't get anything out of the singing of the songs. Uh, I did it, uh, but I didn't enjoy it. And it didn't, it wasn't meaningful to me, but 
intellectually listening to the preaching of the word and and trying to understand how the the Bible fits with our experience today, that was something that I um, got something out of. So we're all different. Uh, find out who is in your church and adapt as as much as you can, and and just remain teachable. I think that's really uh, really an important point about how we each receive God, we each give thanks, we each worship uh, differently, right? And uh, so we started off talking about uh, neurodiversity a bit and how that relates to to autism. Uh, we, all, we are all neurodiverse. We are all embodied differently as well. And so uh, our interactions need to look different. I think that's one of the beauties that each of you bring through your work and through your ministry is that you have a full appreciation for kind of the range of the ways people express themselves and also receive God. And that's such a powerful lesson for us. I, I think of the the quote or the statement that when you, you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And sometimes I feel like we get into that that pattern or that rut as churches where we have a sermon. So we're going to we're going to use that sermon and we're going to use it every Sunday and we're going to maximize the time we spend on it. Right. It is it is it's valuable. I don't want to kind of um, undermine um, the aspect of of people really thoughtfully uh, delivering the word in different ways. But at the same time, it's not the it's not the be all and end all for everyone. Right. And uh, and so how do we how do we diversify our communities? How do we reach each other in different ways? How do we greet and welcome one another in different ways? I think these are all aspects that you call us to pay attention to. Um, Cynthia, in your your book, Kinship in the Household of God, you have this really beautiful quote. Uh, it really resonated with me. I think it resonated with Jasmine as well. Uh, we've worked at Christian Horizons for many years and started out in direct support where we would uh, provide supports for people who, it's difficult to know how to, to say it, but who um, had some significant kind of behavioral uh, ways of expressing themselves, uh, so it could it it could end up hurting uh, in in different ways. It may be self injurious behavior at times, uh, but but often that was due to the expectation that people be able to communicate using words, right? And so the you can imagine the frustration, the difficulty for folks if they're in pain or in their difficult situations or something's happening that they don't like to kind of express themselves and get that across. And so you have the, back to the quote, um, page 23, uh, there's, there's Denise who says, sometimes hello can only be said with a gentle headbutt, <laughs> right? And there's these different ways of, of expressing ourselves. It can be a wave, it can be a verbal greeting. Uh, for some people, it might be that gentle headbutt just to say, hey, I'm here, I'm, I'm close, I want to be with you, I'm looking forward to being around you. Can you talk to us a bit about, you know, um, both what that meant to you and how you saw that kind of expression working itself out in, in these communities? I think, Coming to the end of pandemic, I think that's just probably easier to understand in some way. I don't know if, if you encounter that. After a time of social isolation, when you see people, you don't know if you should be shaking the hand, you should be giving them a hug, you should be bowing, or how do you greet each other? And how do we find out but to ask, right? So... I, th I think it's really the same thing. We, we all have our preferred way of greeting one another, the love language, right? We all have that. And we need to understand that to be able to show our love and to receive love. 
And so I think with autistic people, when we understand that they are like each one of us as a person with our own unique preference, with our own uh, particular way of expression, and if we are willing to be open and vulnerable and wanting to get to know the person, we'll find out, right? If, if you're standing in a distance, there is no way you find other than bowing as a greeting. Uh, but once you actually enter into a dialogue, you find out a lot more about the person and what the person really feels uh, comfortable doing. And, you know, we, we have certain expectations in our society, something we call normal, in quote unquote. Um, and we expect that kind of behavior. And so it, it really is to open ourselves to be exposed to a wider range of expressions. Uh, Ellen, since we talked about her, I, I could say her way of showing intimacy. There was one time when I visited her at her house. She tried to squeeze in to my back between me and the chair. And because it is in that pressure, we in between, that she feels secure and intimate. And I initially didn't understand that until her mom explained it. That's what she's been trying to do. Then I know this is the intimate high that she's trying to, to give to me when I visited her at her house. So it, it's a, a matter of getting used to, getting to know one another. And I, I really don't think it's very different to how to get to know anybody else. I love that. That's been one of the greatest gifts that working at Christian Horizons has given me is um, it's taught me how to listen to people in ways other than words. Um, and I, my life is so much richer for it. Uh, my time working with people that don't use words to communicate prepared me to be a parent to a baby that doesn't use words to communicate. It helps me connect with newcomers to Canada that don't speak English. And so we have to find other ways to communicate other than shared language. Um, there's such a beauty in recognizing that there's always communication. It just might not be what you expected. So I, I love that. And that intimacy you talked about, um, learning somebody's language that's based on gestures and facial expression and body language and touch. It, there is a kind of intimacy there because you know, you're, you're really connecting with who they are um, because you don't have the kind of like the veil of language. It's just heart to heart or, you know, eye contact is there's that intimacy. So thank you for both of you for like clearly explaining that. Um, Cynthia, in your book, you talk about kinship. You said kinship, um, kinship is not a word that's often used um, very much in our society, but it powerfully relays what you're getting at in the heart of the book. So can you tell us how you got to that word, word and what it means to you? It's probably not a word that we use very much. We lost in our society, but it, it is something, that, as you say, it's very powerful. But I take that word from Paul's theology uh, of a kinship community. Uh, so we know that Paul doesn't address um, the people in the various churches other than brothers and sisters and sometimes father. So that's why the kinship is wider to just say sibling. 
because they in the in the concept of the first century uh, church, the household is bigger than our nuclear families. Right? So it, it has the the kinship is then bigger than siblinghood. But I like that idea. Um, first of all, because Paul used that to focus our attention that all of our identity is really rooted in us being children of God and therefore separate to one another. And when we actually taking from that, then what I really see there is the difference between kinship and friendship. I think as a, a sibling, then it is not up to us to decide who is to come to the church, right? It's a gift that God gives to the community. What we should do is to receive the gift fearfully and wonderfully as what um, God wanted to enrich our community. Um, friendship in some way, especially in our current understanding of friendship, is a choice. And so you choose certain people as your friends, right? So, um, but when we are looking at a church community and Yin Paul's ideas of kinship, that's what I see the difference. When we can see each person as God's gift, give to the community as a dear and beloved sibling, then we would need to be loving the person as God has loved us. So, um, yeah, that's the, the key concept that I, I want to um, explore in my book. I love that. And we've talked a bit about, you've already talked about circle of friends, right? And so um, I think those two concepts are really helpful as we think about how we relate to each other as the body of Christ, that it's it's not just a choice, right? We are, in a way, stuck with each other as fellow members of a family. I think we've all experienced that to some extent or another, right? That um, that we are in a way responsible to one another, responsible for one another, responsible for ourselves. Um, and we are all children of God together. And that identity cannot be changed by depending on how much we, we like one another or, um, relate well to one another. At the same time, uh, I think, uh, of Jesus calling us his friends, right? I've called you friends and how powerful that is. So how do we, how do we, um, bring those two together and recognize our commitment to each other, our, our stuckness in a way, but uh, also call one another friends in this way that we've been um, describing, where we get we really learn who each other is. We learn the gifts, we learn the beauty, we learn how they relate and how they communicate and how we relate and how we communicate. And then together uh, we express that that love of Christ uh, in community settings. And so um, it's no it's no small task, but it's also a wonderful opportunity, right? And I think each of our lives have been. Um, made so much richer by coming across people who are different from us in in many different ways. Um, and that's one of the beauties of the church too, right? In a society where you can easily sign up for the groups or the places that you're with people who are exactly like you. We don't have that option with the church, right? That God has, God, God loves us all and um, calls us his children. 
um, before I preach too much, uh, Stephen, uh, let's go back to you for for a minute here. And so you you wrote the book How to Make Your Church Autism Friendly, and I know that that was a while ago now. So you, you've you've also reached uh, released a number of different blog posts and ideas, Disability and Faith Forum, as Jasmine mentioned. Um, but how do we how do we start to do that? How do we start to embody that reality together as as family as friends? Um, any tips or, or I, I know none of us have all the answers as you have uh, mentioned, but any tips for churches that are thinking, I'd love to live into that reality. How do I start going about that? Yeah. So in my book, uh, How to Make Your Church Autism Friendly, uh, interestingly, I don't focus on on friendship, which you would think might uh, be important to, to have in there. And that's because... Um, at the time that I wrote that, I was getting contacted by a lot of uh, people, um, church leaders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, and so on, saying, we have uh, a child with autism. What do we do? Like, we, we need to do something right now. Uh, where do we start? And there are some practical things that can happen and that need to happen. And all those things are very important. And, and that's um, in many ways, what, what I focus on uh, in that, and, and that has to happen. But since then, I'm, I've tried to focus more on what it means to uh, connect uh, with a person uh, with autism and with a family uh, of um, a person with autism. Because uh, when, when you're welcoming the um, uh, an individual with autism, uh, oftentimes th- their family is a part of the, the picture and they have their own needs uh, as well. And it really comes down to communication. Um, when uh, there was a time when I took a break from pastoral ministry and we were just going to attend church and um, we were going to bring our son with us. He was uh, still living with us at that point. And uh, we, we were not sure what that was going to, to look like. And so uh, we uh, were going to go to a specific church and we contacted the pastors who we knew them already. And uh, the lead pastor and the, the family uh, pastor came to our house and they just sat there and listened to what what it was that we thought uh, that we needed, what we thought our son needed. Uh, they didn't come saying, okay, uh, we are a good um, autism-friendly or disability-friendly church, and we have a program ready to go. We can just plug your, your son in, and everything will be good. Uh, they didn't promise anything, to be honest, uh, other than that they would try and that they would listen and that they would ask questions when they they didn't know the answers. And I thought that was such a great posture for them to to take. Uh, Where I've seen things go bad is when churches have made an assumption ahead of time saying, I know what this family needs or I know what this individual needs. And so we're gonna put it into, into practice without having talked to them. And uh, it, uh, it almost always goes bad. Um, you have to be in communication, uh, preferably to talk to the person uh, with autism. Uh, 
but uh, include the, the family as well. And just be ready to learn and to uh, adapt and to pivot when you need to. And um, it can happen. It absolutely can happen. Uh, if anything, uh, COVID-19 uh, has taught us that when we're motivated enough, uh, we can change when we're facing circumstances that we don't fully understand and that we can, we can uh, adapt to what's going on. And so we had a pretty strong motivation to do that during COVID-19. And we can do that with families with autism as well. And uh, you contact other people, you learn what best practices are and, and, and so on. Um, but seek to have those, uh, those relationships with people and to, um, and to realize that it can be messy. Uh, it can be um, uncomfortable for some people. Uh, there was one Sunday when we were in that church uh, in the middle of the service, our son said, uh, just kill me now. And, <laughs> and and at that moment, we wish that he was a little bit more minimally verbal because uh, it was a little bit uh, uncomfortable to hear that uh, in that in that moment. And he was he was uh, uh, giving words uh, from a movie. But you know what? Uh, the pastor wasn't bothered by it. And when he would hum during his sermon, uh, he would say, isn't it great that everyone is welcome here? Because he would he recognized that there were people in the congregation who were giving dirty looks because they didn't want the humming. They didn't want the, the noise during the service. And uh, and the pastor was proactive to to respond to that. So the, the number one thing is uh, or number two, the two things would be um, communication uh, and and just being willing to be teachable. Uh, that you're willing to to change and and not start out from the the posture of already knowing the answers. I love that because those are both, in theory, not difficult. Start with communication and being teachable. Everybody can do that. Uh, Cynthia, you've been heavily involved in church leadership, and you mentioned earlier that you're um, a co-founder of Village Eulogia. Do you have anything to add on tips that churches and faith communities um, can put into practice to be more open and welcoming and a place of belonging for people with autism and their families? If I'm to add, I, I would add that the church is in the best position to provide support for the whole family. I think that um, beyond supporting the person with autism, we, we know that autism affects the whole family. The parents, yes. And that is also pretty well understood. Uh, but the siblings is another group that I think the church really is really, really well positioned in their children ministry, in their youth ministry to reach out to. And in a family with a child with autism, as you could well imagine, a lot of energy will be diverted to the child's need. And the siblings who are neurotypical, we use that language, then could feel left out or neglected sometimes. Uh, we have some, uh, in, in Village Logia, we had a sibling support group. So we listen to the story and, and sometimes it's a really heartbreaking to, to hear some of the story. 
And I could always think that, you know, if this whole family is welcome into the church, and if the church is really supporting everyone in that family, then the siblings would have received really good support as well. So I think, um, yeah, that would be something that I, I do like to uh, advocate for the church to consider. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I know I've uh, learned a lot, and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. Uh, for people who want to to learn more, want to follow along with your your work or your writing, or even uh, just resources, perhaps that you want to point people to, um, where can they go? Uh, let's start with you, Cynthia, and then turn it over to back to Stephen. Stephen, uh, some of the resources that uh, we have as the alliance is in the Alliance Canada website. Um, and then Village Yerogia has, uh, has some resources there too. But there are really a lot of books out here. Uh, it's increasing in volumes uh, and, uh, and covers many different areas. That, so I would encourage people um, to read. And the current or uh, the recent publications uh, by uh, EFC, uh, a disability resource is a really good, simple little booklet that is very helpful. So I have uh, some resources available as well. I have a website uh, where I try to um, put together a number of resources and blog posts. Uh, it's called, uh, it's disabilityinchurch.com, but I call it when uh, disability comes to church. Uh, but the actual URL is uh, disabilityandchurch.com because I didn't think of uh, the name until uh, I had already gotten the domain. So that's the way it worked. And I have a pretty broad um, definition of disability there. So I tried to talk about uh, everything from autism to uh, physical disabilities and uh, neurodiversity in general, uh, mental health and even addictions. So it's, it's a pretty, uh, uh, pretty broad umbrella that um, I'm working with. And uh, I try to recommend uh, some books and podcasts and so on. Uh, I try to read as widely as I can and to, to share what I learned at that particular website. Thank you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to chat with you and to get to know you and hear your stories and the, the work you're doing. And we just uh, we hope that you continue to find ways to connect with people and that you continue doing the good work that you're doing. Thank you. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. It helps people to find this podcast. And why not share this episode with a friend? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email at ministry at christian-horizons.org. This podcast has been brought to you by Christian Horizons and is part of the New Leaf Podcast Network. Christian Horizons is a faith-based organization out of Canada. We serve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and in several countries around the world through Christian Horizons Global. You can find more information about us at christianhorizons.org. Special thanks to Tim Bratton and to the New Leaf Podcast Network team, and to you for listening.